So Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to open up our hearts and to strengthen us to boldly take hold of the promises that you've given us in these verses. So help us understand your word. Strengthen your servant here and your servants in every place this Lord's day to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and teach your word only. And that in a way that results in the conversion of the lost and the building up of the converted to the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7, God's word. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel, for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And all God's people said. This is an amazing text for us. I know that for some... Um, it may seem like just a, a part of a very ancient piece of uh, literature um, that it may just be referring to some historical event that took place so long ago. But let me tell you what we find here is directly applicable to your heart and life this day. And I think you'll see that by the time we get to the, the end of this sermon, if not before. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine there was a preacher of the gospel here in Greenfield uh, during the presidency of George Washington. That's a long ways back, isn't it? And imagine he, uh, that preacher stood up, and I don't believe in modern day prophecy, so this is just for the sake of the illustration. He stood up and said, I'm prophesying that 200 years from now, a movie star is going to be elected as the president of the United States His name's going to be Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan wasn't conceived yet, or his parents, or his grandparents, I guess probably his great-grandparents, had not been conceived yet in this imaginary story. And they wouldn't have known what a movie star was. But that would not be any less spectacular than what takes place in this text. As a matter of fact, the, the liberal theologians who... Are, were for the most part anti-supernatural, you know, the rationalistic, uh, unbelieving theologians. They did not want to believe that this text was given when it was because of how explicit this text. Same thing's true for the book of Daniel, by the way. They, they, would, they posited a very late date for this that would 
would have been this prophecy that would have really been given after the time the fulfillment took place to try to get around the supernatural element of prophecy. And then, then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and blew them clear out of the water because you had very ancient copies of Daniel, very ancient copies of portions of Isaiah. And all of a sudden you had to understand that this was given seven centuries before Christ and a couple centuries before its fulfillment. This man, Cyrus, is called by name before he was born, before his parents were born, before his grandparents were born. And he's not an Israelite king, he's a pagan king. And God calls him my anointed. My, you know, David was the anointed of the Lord, the anointed king, and, and Christ is the Greek form of Messiah, both of which mean anointed, the anointed of the Lord, the, the king who rules the kingdom of God. And God calls Cyrus a couple hundred years ahead of time, and he says to us at least twice here in this text, and he, won't, he, he doesn't even know me. But I'm telling you, he's going to come and I'm going to use him to deliver my people. And Cyrus is an incredible type or prophetic picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though almost everything about them, you would have to contrast. Cyrus is not a nice guy. The Lord is sinless. Uh, Cyrus's kingdom only lasts for a short time in, in human history. Christ's kingdom is eternal. Uh, Cyrus's deliverance of God's people or his his usefulness to God's people is of more short-term um, benefit it really he he's the one that enabled Israel to come back from the Babylonian exile physically and to come those who wanted to to come back to the land and Christ has this eternal kingdom and an eternal salvation he gives and yet you see in these types where you don't look for you don't look for um, Perfection in the type or the, this prophetic person or prophetic event that is a picture of, of Christ and his redemptive work. You don't look for perfection in that. You look for the one main point. And the main point is here is this man who's predicted so far ahead of time from a human point of view. He's going to come. He's going to be used by God to rescue God's people. And it's a picture of Messiah coming even further down the road from the time the prophecy is given and accomplishing a much greater deliverance for the people of God. And uh, that's what we have here. And, and all, all of those paragraphs that we had just read uh, are illustrated here. Uh, think of that first paragraph, if you want to open back up there to the chapter 5 in the Confession of Faith. That first paragraph said, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most holy, wise, and powerful providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, I could preach on that paragraph, drawing upon scripture for about five sermons easy. But I'm just going to say this. What it's telling us is that every single thing that happens, none of it takes God by surprise. And the whole history of the whole universe... Every thought, every deed, every um, word from rational creatures and all that happens in regard to the inanimate and um, non-rational animate part of the universe. It's all part of God's plan. And none of it 
is ever ever takes God by surprise or is out of his control. Not, none of his plan fails to come to pass, and nothing does come to pass except his plan. Now that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And then number two, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So what he's saying there is that we, we have to understand now how do we fit in the fact that God can't be tempted with evil and doesn't tempt the evil, that all things, even sin, was part of the original plan of God on some level. And God not only has ordained all that ultimately happens, he's made use of second causes so that uh, the devil tempts us. That doesn't take God by surprise. One particular temptation that you might have that the devil brings to you and you, you stumble in it, that didn't take God by surprise. It was part of his plan, but he didn't tempt you. The devil tempted you. Now, admittedly, there's a lot here we don't understand, right? I mean, we can't, we can't uh, completely work out God's absolute sovereignty and the fact he's not responsible for those wicked things that are part of the whole plan that he uses ultimately for the good of his people. But part of the explanation is he uses second causes, what, what in philosophy we call second causes. God doesn't do all the stuff directly. Let's put it that way. So he has here necessarily, freely, or contingently. The Lord didn't make me come to preach to you today as if I was a robot and he programmed me and my will was not involved. My will was involved. I gladly, freely came. Pastor Nathan, uh, Peter and Bill, none of them wrestled me to the ground and twisted my arm and said, you're going to come preach today. No, it was, it was freely. And, uh, but um, I drove in an automobile to get here. And that automobile made use of really laws of nature, there were, there were the free actions of human beings who God gave intelligence to, who invented the internal combustion engine and improved it and, and made you know, automobiles that actually take you places. Uh, and I, as I drove there, and I, you know, I'm not a mechanic, so I just get in my car and I trust my mechanic. You know, when I take it in to get it serviced, he takes care of the stuff. And so I get in my car, I drive here, it gets me here. And, and laws, laws of nature are taking place there. There's nothing magical, even though if you actually hear, if you're not a mechanic like myself, and you hear what's involved in an internal combustion engine, even the older, simpler ones, it sounds almost like magic to those of us who, who aren't good with science. But it's not magic, it's science. It's the laws of nature that man has made use of and harnessed. So that would be necessarily uh, contingently. I was supposed to be here, and I was here, before 10.15 for the elders and I to pray together before the service. That, that could, there, there were a lot of ways in which that could not have happened. I could have had two flat tires on the way here. And if I'd had two flat tires on the way here, I would not have had time, and I gave myself good time, but I would not have had time to call AAA and them take care of two tires and, and all the rest of it and me get here on time. And that could have happened. That would be contingent, see? It, it could be that it wasn't God's will, so therefore I wouldn't get here and there's a, 
thousand ways or more he could have prevented that. So that's what we mean by that second paragraph, is that though God in the first paragraph is in charge of all things, it doesn't mean that he directly does all the things. He works through means that are also part of his, his great plan. Then the third paragraph, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. This would include miracles. Okay, when Christ turned the water to wine, you could take a thousand of the best scientists in the world, and if they will go by the facts as they're laid down for us in John, the Gospel of John, none of them would have an explanation for that. They could deny it, but if they, they would have no explanation if all the facts are put there, that the, they knew it was water, the, the servants drew the, the water just at Christ's command. He didn't even say water be turned to wine. He just said to the, the servants, dip some of that water out and take it to the, to the toastmaster. And he, they took it to the toastmaster and it was the best wine. And nothing explains that. See, when we say that God normally works through means, it doesn't mean that's the only way he works. That's the normal way. But the, he also works above them. And then number seven is what's so helpful to us. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. What is at the heart of God's great plan? The plan that includes everything, everything before the creation of the earth, before, long before the creation, or before the creation of Adam, you know, uh, what, what this plan that as soon as God began to create until Christ comes again, what's at the heart of that plan? The Lord Jesus Christ and his covenant people. You and I are, are part of the whole point of the plan. That's, when you think about the greatness of God's grace. Think about who you are and who I was as sinners who had to be saved by grace alone through Christ coming and dying for our sins and when it, all gets, when it all comes down to the very end, you and I were part of the whole purpose that the universe existed. That, that's, we're almost hesitant to say it, aren't we? Because it sounds so ego, egocentrical. You know, just Really? You think you're the... But we are in Christ. Uh, everything was so that ultimately it's for our good. Now I believe all these points are made here or implied here in our text. Here, God is in control of this future pagan king, makes it clear, as I've said, to his covenant people around 200 years before this event takes place, before he, he exists. God's in control of distant future battles and wars and who the winner will be. The destiny of nations is in God's control. And all of this is being organized and orchestrated for the good of God's covenant people, the people who trust in God's word. What comfort this is to God's people. The title of my sermon, uh, The Heart of the King is in the Hand of the Lord, I've taken a course from Psalm 20, I'm sorry, Proverbs 21, verse 1. Some of you have noticed this text, maybe all of you have. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You know, I, I remember one place I pastored in Indiana, there was a river that ran through some of the farmland, and the farmers told me that 
probably in my grandfather's time or great-grandfather's time, they had diverted that river. It had gone a different way, and it had a tendency to flood, and so they, they dug you know, basically a new channel and diverted that river and made that farmland better farmland. We, we human beings, can turn rivers of water at times. God turns rivers of water anywhere way he wishes, and he turns the hearts of all kings any way he wishes. God is in charge. And the same point is being made in our text this morning. This is a particular example of that general principle in the book of Proverbs that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. The point is that the God who is in control of all things, all the nations, all their rulers, is always working on my behalf and your behalf as God's covenant people. And no matter how much opposition from the world we might face, as far as our Christian confession and witness, no matter what trials and tribulations we're experiencing due to evil in high places or just due to the sinful, fallen world we live in, the one true and living God is in control. Always, every second, every microsecond, he's in control. And he's working every second on behalf of his own people. And he proves it here, in this instance, involving Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. So first, let's just examine the text itself, follow the logic, you might say, of the prophecy. Jehovah, in verses 1 through 3, is prophesying of Cyrus and the military success that God will give him. Jehovah, again, refers to Cyrus as his anointed. The one chosen by God, divinely appointed to do a certain task in the future. And here, long before Cyrus or his immediate ancestors even existed, God uh, prophesies of him through the prophet by name. Jehovah affirms he will hold Cyrus's right hand, which is speaking of Jehovah giving Cyrus success in all his labors, that is, victory in all his battles. This is not to say that Cyrus will himself recognize this. God says he won't. He won't recognize that it's Jehovah giving him the victory. That won't change the reality that that is how he got the victory. Can you picture this proud king? And he was a proud emperor. Patting himself on the back, saying, man, no one's ever been like me before. Because by the t- when he came along, he was historically one of the most powerful uh, dictators that had lived up to that point. We'd had many powerful ones. He was one of the most powerful. And this text, this prophecy, hundreds of years ahead of time said, it won't really be Cyrus that accomplishes this. It's not because he's such a great military mind. You know, he can overcome all his enemies. I'm going to give him success. I'm going to make all his enemies fall before him. And that's how he's going to, that's, that's how this is going to happen. Jehovah allowed Cyrus, and he's prophesying of it here ahead of time, as king of Persia to conquer other nations. Those other nations will not be able to, to successfully defend themselves. God, he says, will loose the armor of kings to open before Cyrus the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. This means that the, the kings of these other nations will have no military success at all before Cyrus and his invading armies. Um, the, the, um, 
Cyrus and his army will ride into their capital cities in complete victory. God has determined far ahead of time the victory of Cyrus over many kings and many nations. And verse 2 of our text is affirming that Jehovah will enable Cyrus and his army to push through any obstacle that's in their way. High places. You know, they, they often would build forts on, on literal high ground because, uh, especially before you had artillery and that kind of thing, high ground was one of your main advantages in a war, in a battle. And uh, Jehovah says, high places won't do any good against Cyrus when I send him. Bronze gates with bars of iron. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? Bronze gates with bars of iron. He said they won't be able to keep Cyrus out. For you see, what God has determined, no opposition of mankind or nature can nullify. In verse 3, God will give Cyrus the secret and hidden treasures of these kings. And it's interesting, it especially comes out in some of the other prophecies. Uh, this, this is like it's Cyrus has paid his earthly wages. You know, all this stuff that he's going to do, that God's going to give him victory, and he's going to go forth and lead his armies and conquer these people, and especially allow God's people to come back after the exile. Uh, all this treasure Cyrus gets along the way is like God giving him his earthly salary for the work he's doing. And the reasons given in verse 3, that you may know that I, Jehovah, who am calling you by name, see, far ahead of time, I am the God of Israel. That is, that the one true God is the God who's revealed himself to that nation called Israel. He is that God called Jehovah God, Yahweh, the great I Am. All the other so-called gods are dumb and dead idols. Cyrus will know this if he will but listen even to reason for his existence and his many victories were all foretold by this true God of Israel who then alone is obviously in charge of all things. Verses 4 through 6, Jehovah will bring all this to pass with regard to Cyrus for the sake of his covenant people for their good and to strengthen their faith in their God. This is that last section 7. Uh, this is a, a text that demonstrates that, uh, that the church is at the heart of God's plan because Christ is at the heart of God's plan. Verse 4, though Cyrus did not know the true God, yet the true God will call Cyrus by name. He will call him by name by prophecy far in advance of his very existence and by providential circumstances at the time of fulfillment. This is and this will be the case even though Cyrus does not know God in a saving way. I don't know if Cyrus ever came to know the true God in a way of salvation. There are pagan kings mentioned for us in Scripture who cease to be pagan, who I think Nebuchadnezzar may have become a believer. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't all you know overnight. But he may have become a true believer. We don't know if that ever happened to Cyrus, but we know that, that uh, God calls him, even though he didn't know God, and God gives this victory to him. God will do all of this, calling Cyrus, giving Cyrus victory over the nations for the sake of Jacob, his servant. That is, for the sake of Israel, his elect or chosen nation. 
And let me jump ahead here because this is where the book of Isaiah goes. So let me just pop ahead here for us because this is part of our application of the text. God is predestined to save all those whom he has given to God, uh, has, has given to Jesus Christ. Jesus says that in the Gospel of John, doesn't he? John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will what? Will come to me. And those who come to me, I will by what? By no means cast out. So just as Cyrus has given victory for the sake of helping Israel, Jesus Christ has been given his victory after his death by his resurrection, and it guarantees the salvation of the elect. We are that elect by God's grace, the chosen of God, who are saved by his grace in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate anointed of the Lord, which is, what again, what Christ means, what Messiah means, the anointed of the Lord. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was an earthly theocracy. You children remember what theocracy is, if you've studied it in school. A nation governed by God would be the literal meaning of a theocracy. Uh, Sometimes um, nations governed by clergy are called theocracies today, like some Muslim countries, etc. But literally, a theocracy would mean a nation governed by God, and the nation of Israel was the only earthly theocracy that God ever established. Uh, God's people in covenant relationship with him, Jehovah God. The church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is an eternal and spiritual theocracy in covenant relationship with Jehovah God by Christ's blood and righteousness. For post-exilic Israel's sake, Cyrus was raised up and given victory over these nations, and this is prophesied of ahead of time. For the sake of those whom God has chosen for eternal life, Christ is raised from the dead, given victory over sin, death, and hell, and all for the sake of God's covenant people. Verse 5, all of this proves that Jehovah is the true God. He foretells, foretells this so far in advance. He brings it to pass exactly as he had foretold it. And this proves that he is the true God, that the God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is Jehovah God. This great I am, that there is no other God. He alone is God. And because he is the one true God... Again, this is verse 5. He will gird Cyrus, that is, he will strengthen and equip Cyrus for victory, even though Cyrus does not know or acknowledge or recognize Jehovah. Have you ever been in a situation where you or someone you knew maybe was working with government officials, and as far as you knew, you know, they might have been Christians, but probably many of them weren't, and you prayed that some, something would come to pass you know, that would require some permission or some act on the part of the government. And you still pray for that, don't you? Even though they may not be believers. We had in the church in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where I pastored so long, there was a young Christian woman married one of our young Christian men. She was from South Africa. And we prayed that she would get a permanent residence uh, card here. And so we were praying for something that would require perhaps non Christians 
to do something so that she would get that card. And that's because we believe, see, that this is true, that God is in control, even over the hearts and actions of the unbelievers ultimately. Verse 6, why was this so important? So that people from all over the world would know and confess that there is no other God besides Jehovah God of the Bible. That the true God is Jehovah, the great I Am. There's no other God besides Him. Do we know this? Do you know this? So many in postmodern America argue with this. And this, by the way, this is not new. The exclusivity of the true God in the Bible. And then as we move on into the New Testament, the exclusivity of Jesus as the only Savior. These have always been chief stumbling blocks to the unbelievers. Those who are not regenerated by the Spirit cannot put up with this. There are many things they could put up with. Many things they might even, uh, on some level, say that looks nice to them about the, the Christian gospel. But the exclusivity of who God is and of Christ as the only Savior they despise. When I first went to Merrimack, 1988, there was a Hindu man who was attending. His wife was a believer, had become a believer after they were married. And, and so she was a member of the church. And he would come. If you know anything about your pantheistic religions, um, usually there, there's a tendency, especially in the Western versions, that you know everybody's okay, you know, Nobody's really wrong. Everybody's right. Um, and uh, Jesus, of course, of course, won't fit into that, will he? The minute he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he put himself outside of that whole approach. But this man, you know, really thought Jesus was a wonderful person, this Hindu. And so he was going on about this, took me out to lunch, and he was talking about this, and I said, well, I said his name, um, what about when Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father but by him? And he did not know what to say. Because you see, he knew that no matter what he claimed about going along with what we taught you know, as, as a Hindu, he knew he really couldn't agree with that. And this is what God says here. I'm, I do these things so you will know from the rising of the sun to its setting, from the east to the west, all throughout the day, Jehovah's true people will know that he alone is the true God, and he alone is in charge. And so verse 7, Jehovah God is in charge of all events. He forms light and makes peace. He creates darkness and calamity. He's behind it all, ultimately. God forms light and makes peace. What's it mean he forms light? Well, on one level... We know that it means spiritual light. He enables sinners in their state of spiritual darkness to see the truth of the gospel and to turn to him and be reconciled to him so that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1, he, makes, he forms light and makes peace. We know that even on the, the uh, physical universe level, he creates the light of the solar system in the beginning and he gives the light of reason to mankind. He gives peace between nations, peaceful times for individuals, families, and larger groups. Because of our sin, those peaceful times don't last very long. But there are times that are relatively peaceful that can only come from God. He brings about reconciliation in the gospel, not only between sinners and himself, 
but peace be also between sinners in our human relationships. You know, when in the text that talk about the wolf lying down with the lamb and, and all of that, when you read the overall context of Isaiah, it's talking about the church and the incredible um, instances of reconciliation you see between sinners. You know, we're the wolves, you know, we're, we're the, the cobras. And yes, it's true that in the, the new heavens and new earth, there won't be any violence, there won't be any danger. But in the immediate context, those are actually talking about us. If you go back and study them, and uh, if you look at the, the bigger context, you see things in the church of Jesus Christ, and we have that the world can't accomplish, can't bring to pass in regard to reconciliation. God forms light and makes peace. God creates darkness and calamity. God closes the minds of those who reject his word, as we see back in chapter 44 of Isaiah. They choose darkness, and he gives them what they choose. They are unable to see the truth and turn to him because they don't want the truth, and they don't want to turn to him. And so they experience calamity, both God's temporal judgments in this world, and if they do not repent and turn to him in time, eternal calamity in the next world. When sinful mankind is too blind to see the right way to go, and this leads as it does to wars and conflicts and calamities on the right hand and on the left, this is because God has ordained it and brought it to pass as the just penalty for our self-chosen sin. Who is going to bring about exile and destruction for God's covenant people in the Old Testament? Jehovah God, against whom they have sinned. Who is going to restore them, bring them back? Cause this pagan future King Cyrus uh, to bring them back and to issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The same God. For he alone is God, and he alone is in control, always. Who destroys the reprobate for their self-chosen sin and darkness, the one true God they have rejected? Who saves the elect by opening our eyes, enabling us to see our need for Jesus Christ and turn to him as Savior? The same God. It is he, Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, who does all these things. And what I've just said now, I believe, is the point of this text. So let's move on and close with this. What then do we learn about the true God from this text? Number one, that the true God is Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, the Holy Trinity. He tells us all of this ahead of time. He brings it to pass at the ordained time to prove that he alone is truly God. No one else can do this. I mentioned earlier the, the uh, rationalistic liberal theologians who didn't want to believe that this prophecy was given when it was really given, as it claims to have been given, because they didn't want to believe in the supernatural. They didn't want this true God. They, don't, they didn't want the idea of one true God. They, they, they liked this idea of all-inclusiveness. And uh, therefore, you, don't, you supposedly don't get controversy. Though it's interesting that somehow in all, this all-inclusiveness, there are some of the most controversial circles anywhere, even among themselves. It's amazing on that, but it's true. But they didn't want to believe this because they didn't want this one true God. But he says, I'm telling you this to show that I am the true God. If you worship and serve any God but the God of the Bible, our text is telling us that you are sinning against the only true God. 
You are sinning against the God who created you for himself. You are commanded, I am commanded, to repent and turn to this one true God of the Bible by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. So the first point is that he is, this, this God of the Bible is the true God, the only true God. Secondly, the second lesson here, the true God is in control of all things, all human beings, and all that happens in the universe. And again, he proves this by naming people before they even exist, by determining who and what they will be and do. If we refuse to turn to him, it is his predetermined just penalty for our sin. If we turn to him by trusting in his servant, Jesus Christ, it is by his almighty grace alone, because he ordained and savingly called us according to his eternal plan and his sovereign purpose. He is in control of all our circumstances all the circumstances of all the universe. More particularly, number three, the true God is in charge of all the nations and rules over them at any given time. Listen to what I'm going to say now, because you'll see why this is so very relevant for controversies in our own nation the last ten years. There is no king, there is no president, there is no prime minister, there is no dictator in charge of any nation or any people who is not ultimately under the control of King Jesus and who is not ruling according to God's eternal purpose. You know, even, even Hitler was part of the plan, but God's not responsible for Hitler's evil. But even Hitler is part of the old big overall plan. Now this is, is relevant because we have on one part of our nation, we have those who say, uh, you know, they were against President Trump. Now we have those who say they're against, you know, our, our current president. And um, Christian, I think we ought to be above that and recognize what is said in Romans 13. No power that exists exists except by God's ultimate purpose. If they're evil, if they're good, if they're just or they're unjust, we don't have to call just unjust or call injustice justice. We actually shouldn't. We should call a spade a spade. But whichever is true, if these rulers are efficient or if they're fools, God has appointed them. God has established them usually according to normal circumstances. Popular vote or, you know, military power, whatever that tool might be that was made use of. It's all under God's providential control. He's using it for the ultimate good of his covenant people. And this is a most important task for genuine faith. We don't live by our emotions. We don't live by sight. We live by what? By faith. And sometimes that faith becomes just a bare, you know, commitment, uh, rock bottom commitment. If God says it, I'm going to believe it. I don't care how things look right now or how things feel right now. My whole life can be going wrong from a human point of view. And I know that Romans 8.28 is true because God says it's true. And this is true in regard to this, you know, who's in control. God is in charge. We need to trust him even when things look bad to us. And then fourthly, the God of the Bible, according to his inscrutable and eternal purpose, has determined who will be rich and successful, who will be poor and defeated. That is, poor and defeated according to this world's standards. The psalmist tells us that victory is not dependent 
on the military ability of a nation in the end of the day, but on God giving victory or defeat to whom he will. Have you ever compared the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel to the song of Mary, uh, the mother of our Lord, uh, when she's speaking in the presence of Elizabeth, the, the mother of John the Baptist? It's the same song. It's the same theme. And, it, it, you know, and of course, both of them are looking at this from the viewpoint that I'm just a humble servant of God, and how can this great thing be happening through me? Of course, with Mary, it's even greater than it was with Hannah. But in their song, they remind us that riches and advancement come from the Lord. Poverty and disgrace and demotion also comes from the Lord. So he is in charge not just of nations, but of all individuals. And all of this is being planned and worked out according to God's infinite goodness, justice, wisdom, and truth. We cannot look just at the immediate to understand this. Brothers and sisters, we must wait to see the big picture, and you won't really see the big picture in regard to these things. You see the big picture in one sense by believing God's word. He says it's all going to come out for his glory. You're seeing the big But as far as experiencing the big picture, you'll have to be in heaven. You'll have to be glorified to really say, okay, now I see how this all worked for God's good, for the good of of God's people for the glory of God. At times, as I've already said, things appear to be so contrary to his goodness and his justice that he tells us to trust in him. Trust in his word, no matter how dark things get. I think it's Isaiah 50 verse 10 talks about um, in time of darkness, trusting in the Lord. When there's no light that we can see, we trust in the Lord and his word. It's all by faith. Later it will be seen, understood openly by God's people, by those saved by grace. But for now he calls upon us to trust what he has said. And why should we? Because he sent his son to die for us. And so has proven his continual goodwill towards us. I'm curious if any of you have a similar experience, whether you had Christian or non-Christian parents. I had, I had godly Christian parents. And sometimes, I remember as a, as a te- young teenager or as a child, I couldn't understand why they said I couldn't do something that I thought I ought to be able to do or why I had to go somewhere or not go somewhere. And, um, but I, I knew they had my good at heart. There were other ways in which they had demonstrated they loved me and had my, my good at heart. And I had to trust them. I remember uh, this happened, I think, when I was four or five, I got one of those really bad, deep splinters in my finger. I remember being before the bathroom sink, and they're holding my hand. One of them's holding me and holding my hand, and the other one's taking a sterilized needle and getting that, and tweezers and getting that out. And I didn't want that. I wanted them to leave it alone, but I was also crying because it hurt so bad. And they kept saying, you trust us. When that, when that splinter comes out, almost immediately you're going to feel relief. And, of course, they were right. But I remember I was, they had to hold me because I was, I was struggling. But, of course, I should have just trusted them. Of course, I was four or five, so I had a lot to learn yet, and that, even in that earthly regard. But this is what God tells us. He's, he's telling you right now, trust me, I'll get the splinter out. 
it will quit hurting, but you've got to trust me. And at the time, it may even feel like it's hurting even more as I'm carrying out my plan for you. But if you'll trust me till we get to the very end, you'll see that, that what, you, what you always always knew because I sent my son to die for you, you'll see that I wrote, this is all done out of love for you. And then number five, we, the church of Jesus Christ, are at the center of God's eternal plan. All things work together for our good. All things are for our, our eternal advancement. Even who is king or president. When and where they are president or king. And whether there is light or darkness, peace or calamity. And again, we have to exercise the gift of faith given us by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise... Apart from taking God at his word, we will not be steady and settled in our conviction of his goodness, his justice, and his mercy in all that happens. For the sake of God's covenant people, good times often come to unbelievers who live in the same country or in close association with God's people. And if that doesn't cause them to repent and believe for themselves, they'll have to answer the final judgment for not repenting when God showed them earthly goodness for the sake of his covenant people, especially if they have mistreated or ridiculed his people, for whose sake they have experienced all this great good. Isn't it interesting that in the end, the people of Sodom were obviously jealous of and hated Lot. And yet, if there had been nine more Lots with him, God would have spared the whole place at that time for their sakes. Think, think of what, what must be true in every generation. That if God's people were not there because of the evil of our world, we, you know, the, the flood will never come again and there will never be a destruction of the whole world until the second coming. God has made that promise, but you can, you can be sure he made it on the basis of Jesus Christ and God's church that's in the world throughout all this, this his time of history. Do you see how important God's covenant people are to God, his blood-bought church? And truly this is incredible to those of us who know we've been saved only by his grace and not from any goodness in us. What amazing grace. Well, I've applied this more fully than just Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. For I believe that's where the prophecy, as I've already said, takes us ultimately, as we see from the rest of Isaiah. This is finally about Jesus Christ and his church. It's about us who trust in Jesus Christ and by him repent of our sin. All things are controlled by our God for our good. I told you this would be relevant, didn't I? All things are controlled by our God for our good. What a promise and what comfort. Amen. Let us pray.